We're taking a little bit of a break from James for the next couple of weeks while Aubrey's out of town, and we're actually going to do a little mini-series on the book of Haggai, which for some reason when I was little, I always thought was pronounced Haggai, and I've heard that from others. I don't know why. It's not. It's Haggai. Haggai is one of the, the 12, what's often called minor prophets. This doesn't mean that they were small in the message that they brought. It just means that the books are short. Uh, it's actually the second shortest book in the Old Testament. And if you're trying to find it, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, um, if you go to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, it's three back from that. So it goes Malachi, and then Zechariah, and then Haggai. Haggai prophesied to the people of Jerusalem after they started returning from exile in Babylon. And his whole message to them was basically, you are the people of God. Act like him. Let me pray for us as we start. God, we ask that you would bless this time in your word. We ask that you would... Make it living and active in our lives, that it would be sharper than a two-edged sword, that it would cut away what is not glorifying to you, and that it would increase those things that glorify you and bring life to your world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Anybody here a procrastinator? I mean, procrastinator, you put things off. I'm, I'm going to wait, because some of you are just not admitting to it yet. Yeah, there we go. Things that you should do, that you know you should do, that you just haven't got to around, around to it yet. But no matter how much that shelf in the bathroom that you said you were going to build is like half built and now you barely even notice it anymore, you ever put something off for 18 years? If you're a procrastinator like me, you would actually fit in well with the people of Israel in this story. Because this passage in Haggai is about God talking to his chosen people, these procrastinating Israelites. They have forgotten that they have a role to play in God's world and that they have an important part to play in God's story of redemption. I want to give you a little background into Haggai because a lot of times these are kind of the books of the Bible that are overlooked and a little history might help. So between about 600 B.C. and 580 B.C., over a period of 20 years, the Israelites were all captured and taken off into Babylon, taken out of their own country, carted off into exile. And as part of this invasion of Babylon, the Jerusalem temple, the one that Solomon built, the one that David said in the psalm that he is not going to give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place of dwelling for you, that one that they had sweated over, that temple was just destroyed. It was knocked to the ground. Then in 538 B.C., about 70 years later, the Babylonians allowed a group of exiles back into Israel. And these Israelites knew what they needed to do. They needed to rebuild Jerusalem. They needed to rebuild the temple. So under their leaders, under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people began the work of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple with enthusiasm and purpose. But all they did was they laid the foundations of this new temple. And then there came a command from King Ahasuerus, who's also known as King Artaxerxes. It's the same guy. King Ahasuerus in Ezra chapter 4 says, stop, you have to stop. And they did for about 18 years. It's great if you actually trace the history through the different books of the Bible. It's just a good reminder that all the books of the Bible tie together to tell one story. God had warned his people of the consequences of not following his law in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. He warned them that he was going to punish them with exile for abandoning their covenant. He warned them of this in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And he sent prophet after prophet to try to change their ways. And he also said through his prophets, through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that the exile into Babylon was going to last for 70 years, but that at some day, 
it would end, and he would return his people to the promised land. So, like I said, in about 538 B.C., the first group of people come back into the land of Israel. They come back to Jerusalem. And as they returned, they knew how important this temple was, this place where the the focused, the, the most tangible presence of the Spirit of God was dwelling among his people. But then they stopped. They stopped building. In 18 years later, this is, where, this is where our guy Haggai comes in. Haggai was given a direct prophecy from God in the second year of the, of the reign of King Darius. That's what it says. So that definitively puts it at 520 B.C. This is corroborated from the Babylonian records. So the Israelites come back in 538 B.C., 18 years later, 520 B.C. Haggai says, you guys need to get going. I wish I could say that I can't imagine what it feels like to put something off for that long, but I can, and maybe you can too. You almost get to the point where you say, I haven't done this for so long, I don't even know where to begin, and it just becomes overwhelming. And then you get focused on other things, and you manage to shove it to the back of your mind, and you go try to live your life. Three things, I think, that God is telling to his people, and also maybe to me and you in this passage. And the first one is, give careful thought to your ways. The second is, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. And the third, and the most important one, is this, I am with you, says the Lord. Over and over, from one end of the Bible to the other, we see that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is no different. He has waited for his people to follow his commands. He has waited 18 years for his word to be followed. And now through Haggai, he's letting his people know what his perspective is on the choices that they're making. Verse 1, he gives a message to to Haggai to to talk to two different people who were in charge of all Israel, the the civil leader and and the religious leader, Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And they've been making great excuses, I'm sure. The number of times I've made excuses to not do what I know God would have me do. Verse 1, God says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the people knew that they had to rebuild the house of the Lord at some point. No one's saying that this whole temple thing isn't important, God, but we've got some bigger issues right now. Have you seen this city? Have you seen the countryside around it? This place was ravaged by war. We've got to get this going. We're going to build our own house, and then, and don't worry, we're going, to, we're going to take care of the temple too, but we've got to see to our physical needs first. It sounds pretty reasonable. We need to make sure that we have food and shelter and heat, but maybe it's not nearly as purely motivated as that. Because in verse 3, God says, is this the time for you to be dwelling in paneled houses while my house remains a ruin? That word there, that paneled houses, it's an exact term that was used to describe how Solomon's temple looked. And so it's not here by accident. God is saying, I used to have a paneled house. I asked you to rebuild it, but you couldn't be bothered to do that. And yet you've found time to make your own paneled houses. Interesting. So you've been happy to put time into your own lives, but you've neglected rebuilding the house of the Lord. You have to ask yourself, why is God so fixated on this? Why is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe so worried about this one building? A couple of things about that. This is not about God needing us to give him a hand. Sometimes, and I think it's always very well-intentioned, but sometimes you, you might hear something like, well, you know, 
God wants to do this or that in your life, or God wants to do this or that in the world, and it's always then followed by, but you need to take the first step. It's not true. And thank God it's not true, because there's a lot of things that would be left undone if that were true. Throughout this passage and throughout many places in the Old Testament, you can see that God is referred to as the Lord of hosts. And I think that's actually an important key for, for us to remember that God doesn't necessarily need us to get done what he wants to get done. Lord of hosts is one of those kind of churchy words that you hear and you don't quite give any thought to it. And it, it might sound a little bit outdated. Um, in, in the ESV, it's Lord of hosts. In the NIV, it says the Lord Almighty, which kind of gets a little closer at it. In, in the new Christian Standard Bible, or CSB, which I really like a lot, I think it gets at it exactly because it translates it literally. In the CSB, it says, instead of saying the Lord of hosts or the Lord Almighty, it says, thus says the Lord of armies. Because that's what hosts, or, or zedeka in, in Hebrew, that's what it literally means. It's groups of soldiers. It's platoons, battalions, armies. It's a statement of God's might and God's power. So when you think of God wants to do this or that, but... You have to take the first step. Do you really think that if there was something that the Lord Almighty, the God of armies, wants to accomplish, that he couldn't do it by himself? God doesn't, God's not going to hand, God doesn't need us to start his orange for him. God, God is doing just fine on his own. But what it's about, this whole passage, is not about God needing his temple to be rebuilt. If he wanted it rebuilt, it would have been done. This is about God's people having the correct priorities. God is going to accomplish what he wills, but he also calls us to a pattern of living and a set of priorities of how we should order our life. The Israelites had just returned from exile. One of the chief reasons they had been sent into exile in the first place was misplaced priorities. They had stopped making the Lord the center of their life. They had started worshiping idols. They had abandoned God, and they started living like all the unbelieving nations around them. But now, here, after God has brought them back into their, into their land to start over again, after punishing them with exile for abandoning their priorities, here they are again abandoning their priorities. They had been commanded to rebuild the temple, and they weren't doing it. But clearly, they did have some spare time these last 18 years. They managed to kind of get their thing together enough to actually build their own houses using the very same resources that they should have been using to build God's house. And here we have... The most, one of the most biting and haunting commentaries on self-focused living that I've ever heard. Listen to this in verse 5. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says, or this is what the God of armies says. Give careful thought to your ways. That is, think, think about what you've done so far. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you can never get your fill. You clothe yourselves, but you are never warm, and anybody who makes money does it to put it into a bag with holes in it. This is really bleak. This sounds like the, the beginning of Ecclesiastes, where the poet starts, he, he starts his book by saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. He says that all the things in this life that are done without a focus from God, that all those things are just chasing after the wind. The Jews have come back into their land, and yet, for all of their busyness, all of their effort, all of their work, the results were never enough. They were never satisfying. In verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, he says it again, consider your ways. Now, this is both an ability for us to look backward on what we've already done, 
but it's also to look forward on the road that we're on. He says, consider your ways. So go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Basically, God is saying to his people through the prophet Haggai, you have a problem. But the problem has a really clear solution. Abandon, abandon your self-interest. Trust in God and then change your priorities to reflect that. And what he's doing is holding up a mirror to their lives. Give careful thought to your ways. He's saying, look at the road that you're walking on. Do you really want to keep going like this? Isn't it exhausting to eat and never have your fill? Isn't it tiring to drink and never have enough? To heap clothing on yourself but never be warm? These people had tried so hard to build themselves back up and to put together a tiny little remnant of what their country once was. They'd come back from exile. They had tried to live their lives and expand their fortunes and their land. And yet again, God reminds them of who he is and what he can do versus who we are and what we can do. He says, you looked for much, but behold, it came to little. And whatever that little was that you brought home, I just blew it away. You tried so hard and you gave such a maximum effort for such a minimum result. And that minimum result, I took that too. That's what's been going on here. That's why you've had famine. That's why you've had drought. That's why your animals died. And it's like, in Haggai, it's like the light went off for these people. For almost two decades, they had been prioritizing themselves instead of prioritizing God. But as soon as God spoke directly to them and showed them why their lives had been going the way that it had, showed them the error of their ways, the people repented. And this is the, the joy and the, the heart at this center of the first part of Haggai. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord had sent over them. And all the people feared the Lord. Over and over again throughout the Bible, God desires repentance and he promises to forgive. God gives his people the opportunity to return to him and he promises restoration every time. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. This is one of the drumbeat messages of the Bible. And as soon as they repent, God tells them the exact same thing that he's been telling people since Adam and Eve. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. You may have heard at some point in time that the most, the, the most common phrase that God says to people throughout the Bible is do not fear. Fear not. Do not fear. Be not afraid. Some version of that. But on any list of most common phrases throughout the Bible, pretty high up on that would have to be, I am with you. Over a hundred times throughout the Bible, God either tells a single person or a group of people, I am with you. God is holy and all-powerful. He is the God of armies controlling everything in the universe. And so it's no wonder that he needs to constantly remind us, do not fear. But that same God is also near to us. He is in the midst of us. He is literally Emmanuel, God with us. He has sent his people into exile because they would not repent of their wickedness. They would not repent of their failure to keep him central in their lives. And he brought them back. And they still would not keep him central in their lives. They ignored the role that they had to play in God's plan. But when they're confronted with their sin, when, the, when, when a mirror is held up to their lives and in stark relief, they see what they've done and the consequences of it. They repent. 
And when their actions show the fruit of true repentance, God immediately reminds them, I am with you. I've always been with you. I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I brought you into this land. I brought you out of exile in Babylon. I brought you back into this land. I am with you. I am always with you. This is our God, and he delights in restoring us to himself. Why did God want his temple rebuilt so badly? So that his people would focus their attention on him. Why did the temple need to be rebuilt? Was it so we could have a nice little morality tale in this little book of Haggai about the the value of hard work? No. It's so that the Israelites could remember and so that all the nations around the nation of Israel could remember that Israel was God's chosen people in God's chosen land, building God's chosen kingdom. And God wanted his temple rebuilt because the temple also plays an incredibly important role in the history of redemption, in this whole biblical narrative that is all focused in on Jesus. Why did the temple have to be rebuilt? So that the Jews could come to it for their festivals. Why did the Jews have to come to it to their festivals? So that Jesus would be able to go to Jerusalem for Passover and be offered up as an atonement, the true and final and perfect Passover lamb. Why did God want his temple rebuilt so badly? Ultimately, so that King Jesus could come and make all things new. In Haggai, the Jews are on the wrong path, even though they probably didn't have sinister motives. They were probably just looking out for their own lives and looking to their own material concerns and just forgetting to keep God central to their lives. God speaks to them through Haggai. They repented. God reminded them that he was with them. And they got back to the mission that God had given them. And God was pleased. God was pleased to use their efforts, even though they had procrastinated, even though they needed to be reminded, both through prophecy and through famine, God was still pleased to use their efforts as part of this great story of redemption, as part of the resurrection life that is promised to everyone who believes in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. We absolutely never know what God is going to choose to use to advance his kingdom. God's people are on mission. They have always been. In Ephesians 2.10, it says that we were God's handiwork, that we were created for good works, which God had prepared for us to do in advance. We are active witnesses to, and we are active participants in that, that work that God does in his world. And so because of that, God is going to use your work for his glory and for the life of the world, regardless of where your priorities may have been, regardless of how long you may have put something off. When we return to God, when we focus on him, when we keep him central, God is pleased to use our works, humble and meager as they are. So if you remember anything about today, remember these three things. God telling the Israelites this and also God telling us this today. First is give careful thought to your ways. Look at what you've been doing and look at where you're going. Are you doing it for yourself? Are you doing it for God? God does not give us time and money and resources in order for us to pursue our own pleasure. He gifts us with these things so that we might gift them to others and so that we're better equipped to do his work in the world. The second is, be strong. All you people of the land, declares the Lord. In other words, we've got stuff to do. And it's not easy. But we get to be a part of God's plan and God's work. And so even when it gets hard, there is nothing that is more rewarding ultimately than keeping God central in our lives and behaving in that way. And so be diligent in the work that God has given you. Because thirdly and finally, and most importantly, remember this, I am with you, says the Lord. 
God is in control and there's nothing that he cannot do. And yet, he is also with us and near to us. And so no amount of work that we do in his name is wasted. Even when the results of our best efforts seem like absolutely nothing compared to what someone else can do, God is still pleased to use those things. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul reminds us by, in fact, quoting a lot of Old Testament scripture, he reminds us that because of Jesus, because of the Christ, that death is swallowed up in victory. He tells us that because of Jesus, our failing and imperfect bodies are going to be renewed as perfected and resurrected bodies. He tells us that because of Jesus, nothing that we do for the kingdom is wasted action. Even if we've been putting it off for years, even if we have messed up our priorities and turned away from the life that God calls us to live, that life where we are called to to die to self and pick up our cross and follow him and trust in Jesus, even if we've gone way off the rails and spent much more time building our own paneled houses than in doing the work of the kingdom, God is still with us. Even then, the labor that we do for God is not in vain. No matter how young you are or how old you are, no matter how many resources you have or don't have, the things that we do for the kingdom of God have meaning and value, and our labor is never in vain because he is with us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would remind us to to turn back to you, to consider our ways, to delight in the fact that you are with us, to take pleasure in the work that you have given us to do, and to keep us always focused on Christ, delighting in in the truth of, of his death and resurrection, delighting in the fact that even though we have work to do, that Jesus still reminds us that we are to come to him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. God, I thank you that even, even the work that you give us to do is still, is still rest and light compared to the, the exhausting work of, of trying to satisfy our own desires. Please remind us of that this week. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.